Well, hello there. Our audio recording from the last Sunday school lesson seems to have gotten damaged or something, and so I am here recording my lesson J. Vernon McGee style. Uh, there's no class to interact with, but I'm going to reiterate my lesson for the sake of the Roman series. We have, I think, every Every lesson, every verse has been recorded. Every lesson's been recorded, and it would just really be painful for OCD people like me to know that this one lesson would be missing from our Roman series. So this is the lesson for Romans 10, 1 through 4, and uh, it's without any students. So I'm going to just jump into it. Uh, Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, and I will actually go ahead and read that passage uh, before we get into the text. It says, starting in Romans 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, speaking of Israel, is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, I want to start out talking about the book of Romans as a whole. There's a, a chart that I made that I handed out to the class at the time. Um, that chart is available. If you contact me, I can get that to you. But it's just a very basic overview of the book of Romans. It's outlined extremely logically the way Paul uh, put that letter together. And once you get past the introduction, which is the first uh, 17 verses, you see really four major categories that Paul addresses, starting with chapter 1, verse 18. And from chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, you see that the theme or the major instruction that Paul is getting across is that all of mankind is condemned under the righteousness of God. A very basic verse that illustrates this within that section is Romans 3.10, for there is none righteous, no, not even one. All of mankind is condemned. So condemnation is the first big category of Romans. And then starting at chapter 3, verse 21, extending all the way through the end of chapter 8, the big theme is salvation. So he moves from condemnation to salvation. And there are several places where you can turn within that section to see that that's the theme of that section. Um, I'll read Romans 3, 21 through 26. This is where Paul is immediately transitioning from the section on condemnation to now uh, salvation. And, and what we have, I, I should have mentioned at the beginning, what we have throughout the book of Romans is this theme of God's righteousness. We saw it in the, the last section with uh, condemnation. There is none righteous, no, not even one. The term righteous or righteousness, it comes up in the book of Romans uh, north of 30 times, I think somewhere around 35 times. No other New Testament book features that word more than 20 times. In fact, many are, are much lower. That's clearly the theme of the book of Romans. It's all about the righteousness of God. And we see in the introduction of the book that 
The gospel is the source of God's righteousness. Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. Um, That's in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. He says that it in the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So we, we see the gospel revealed in, or we see the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. Romans 3.10, for there's none righteous, no, not even one. Why is man condemned? Well, because God is righteous and we're not. That's where we start in our gospel conversations with people is helping them to understand that God is holy and they are not. So there's a gap in in between God and us in that he is righteous, we are unrighteous, therefore we are condemned. Now, sorry, finally getting back to chapter 3, verse 21, as Paul pivots from the section on condemnation to the section on salvation, we're going to hear more about God's righteousness in salvation. So listen uh, listen for that word, righteous or righteousness, as I read chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Paul says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God's righteousness is revealed in salvation, not only in our condemnation that reveals God's righteousness in that the very fact that we're condemned, but also in our salvation, God's righteousness is revealed. And we see in chapter 3, verse 21 that I just read, that apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. And I'll talk about that more in just a bit. And in verse 22, he qualifies that by saying, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. He says in verse 25 that the propitiation of Christ, that is the sacrificial death of Christ, was to display God's righteousness. So in the cross we see the righteousness of God. In that event that took place in the past, Jesus dying on the cross, it was to demonstrate God's righteousness. And it is to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, too, because on the basis of the death of Christ, he can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 26 says, So we see God's righteousness in the cross, that justice was served, and we see God's righteousness now, continuing on in the present, that he justifies those who are unrighteous on the basis of Jesus's sacrificial death. Romans is all about God's righteousness, and we see it in condemnation, and we see it in salvation. Not just in chapter 3 talking about salvation, but chapter 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8 talk about salvation also. I want to read to you Romans 4, starting in verse 1. Again, listen for this word, righteousness. What shall we say that Abraham, 
our forefather, according to the flesh, has found. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. David said, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Wow. So Abraham believed God, and through that belief, God credited to him righteousness. And then in verse 5, Romans 4, verse 5, this is a very key verse. We're going to come back to this. It says, To the one who does not work for his salvation but believes in him, capital H him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Very important verse. We're going to come back to that. And then finally, Romans 5, verses 18 through 21, another passage that I want you to see, God's righteousness and salvation. It says, So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the many, or sorry, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, Very clear contrasting between the first Adam, Adam, and the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Through the first Adam's disobedience, many were made sinners. But through the act of obedience of Jesus Christ, many will be made righteous, righteous we are made by faith in salvation. So we have the introduction of Romans talking about the source of God's righteousness, uh, or the source of righteousness for us, rather, is the gospel of God. It's the power of God. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Okay, So we, we get that right from the get-go. And then Paul launches into a section that's about condemnation. We are all condemned under God's righteousness because we ourselves are not righteous. Then the next section of the book, Paul talks about salvation and how righteousness is revealed in salvation. It's credited to those who believe that righteousness of God is imputed to the account of the believer. And so God's righteousness is revealed and credited to believers. And now we get into the next section of Romans, which is chapters 9 through 11. And now we're Paul's going to be talking about vindication. He was talking about condemnation, salvation, and now vindication, particularly how God is vindicated in his dealings with Israel. In his dealings with Israel, he is not unrighteous, but he maintains his righteousness. Though so many Israelites now are lost and are not saved and will will not be saved, God is still righteous. That does not change God's righteousness. That's the whole theme of, of this section, chapters 9 through 11. 
Starting at the end of chapter 9, verse 30, it says, What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? This is what Paul's been talking about, salvation, that imparts righteousness to the believer by faith. And the Gentiles have received it. Wow. Well, what shall we say to that? Verse 31, But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This is what was covered in the last lesson, that Israel refused, rejected the righteousness of God that's credited to them by faith, in Jesus Christ for their salvation. Instead, they pursued a law of works. They pursued a law of works. And so this section is talking about how God is vindicated in his dealings with them because they're the ones who reject him. He maintains his righteousness, and they refuse his righteousness because they refuse to pursue it by faith. Now, the final section of Romans is chapters 12 to 16, and it talks about walking in God's righteousness. One of my favorite sections is chapter 14, and it says, you know, it's talking to believers. Now that now that you've been saved and you understand what God is doing in the world and you understand what he's doing with Israel, look, walk by the law of Christ. Live in peace with one another. Walk in wisdom. Walk in the righteousness that you've been credited And it says in Romans 14, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but it's peace and joy and righteousness in the Holy Spirit. And that's our rule of of faith now. As we walk, it's by the word of God, the righteousness that's revealed in the gospel, by the freedom that we have in Christ for the glory of God, this righteous God who has justified us. And so uh, going back, thinking about this section of God being vindicated— in his dealings with Israel, we're right in the middle of that section as we're beginning chapter 10 now, Israel has refused the righteousness of God because they have refused to pursue God's righteousness by faith. And what we learn in today's passage is that ignorance of God's righteousness looks like self-righteousness. Israel's problem started with them not knowing it says in Romans 10:2, our passage for today, that uh, Paul says, I testify about Israel that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. So their problem started with them not knowing. And we see here that zeal is only as good as the knowledge that directs it. Just because someone has zeal, that doesn't mean that that person's right or good or you know, covered. And no matter what happens, it's not like they can do whatever they want. And, and then on judgment day say, well, Hey, you know, I know that I didn't do the things you wanted me to do, but I had zeal and God will say, Oh wow. Yeah. You were really zealous. And that really covers a multitude of sins. That's not the case. Uh, Think about people in life who have a zeal for investments. They like to invest their money. They have a zeal for that, but it's not in accordance with knowledge. They lose a lot of money. (laughs) Is, is, is that good? Is, is their zeal good? Well, no, no, it's not. Um, do you have a zeal for eating? Is that zeal in accordance with knowledge? 
because that zeal for eating could be an extremely bad thing if it's not in accordance with knowledge. Or relationships, people who have a zeal to be in relationship but not in accordance with knowledge, they just keep going back to people who hurt them. They, they get into really bad relationships because they're just, they can't be without somebody. What about religion? That's, that's what we're talking about here. People who have a zeal for religion, a zeal for God, but it's in ignorance, a zealous ignorance. Is that zealous ignorance advantageous for them? Well, no, it's not. We've been uh, going through the book of 1 Corinthians on Sunday mornings, and the Corinthians had a zeal for spiritual expression in the assembly. They had a great zeal to uh, express spiritual gifts, but it wasn't in accordance with the knowledge of love and harmony in the church that God has, has called us to have. And so that zeal for spiritual expression was actually very poisonous in the Corinthian church. Paul himself had a zeal before he was saved. And how did that zeal play itself out? Well, he persecuted the church. He oversaw the killing of, of Christians. And so that zeal was no good because that zeal was ignorant. And he's saying about Israel today, he testifies about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. And the big idea is that ignorance of God's righteousness looks like self-righteousness. Verse 3 in our passage today, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Because they did not know about God's righteousness, what did they do? Verse 3, They sought to establish their own righteousness. If you are ignorant of God's righteousness, you will be self-righteous. That's the state of Israel, Paul says. And what's interesting is it says they, they didn't know about God's righteousness, and they didn't, they didn't have knowledge, but they had everything they needed to know, right? They, they had everything they needed in order to know. So why didn't they know about God's righteousness? Well, it's because... They were absolutely blinded by their own depravity. And this is just a fascinating thing. Our, our anthropology, our beliefs about mankind, those beliefs directly impact our soteriology, our beliefs about salvation. Our beliefs about mankind directly affect our beliefs about salvation. Israel, in their depraved state, which is the natural state of every human being, they believed that they could earn favor with God by their works. And they sought and they continued to seek to prove their own righteousness, which is absolutely antithetical to faith. They were existing in their depravity, you know, as Paul's writing about them, and you could say this about them today too, existing in their own depravity, just expecting Messiah to come, to pat them on the back, and to establish his kingdom and say, well, you guys have just done a great job. Here I am. Let's, let's rule and reign together because you're so awesome. And that's just an amazing thing about our depravity. It leads to what the Bible calls self-deception. They were self-deceived. They had this, this mindset of we can earn something from God because we're not as bad as some think we are. We're not as bad as even the scriptures themselves themselves rather, say that we are. 
you know, they had plenty of Old Testament scriptures. David said, in sin, my mother conceived me, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is desperately sick. It's, who can understand it? It's deceitful above all things. They had these things, but they refused to own that. And in their ignorance, they just had a zeal for works, believing they could earn something from God. And so without this knowledge, which they refused in their sin, they refused the knowledge in their sin, they were deceived, self-deceived. Without this knowledge, Israel also couldn't submit. It says there in verse 3 again, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves or submit to the righteousness of God. Isn't it interesting that we don't only submit to God, but according to this verse, we submit to the righteousness of God. We submit to God's very righteousness. That's Israel's problem. They wouldn't, they don't submit themselves to the righteousness of God. And this submission looks like owning our sin, relying on grace, calling on the God who is there. This submission doesn't look like performing a law of works. That's Israel's problem is that they they demand that they follow a law of works. That's not something that we're called to do. That's something Israel's called to reject. And so it's not like, well, okay, how do we submit? How do we submit to God in his righteousness? Okay, well, there must be a list of rules that we have to follow. No, that's actually the problem. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's Israel's problem. The answer is to submit to the righteousness of God, which is to own your sin, say that you can't do anything, rely on his grace to believe, to believe in Jesus, to trust in the finished work of Jesus. That's what it means to submit to the righteousness of God. So that's a, that's a very important distinction to make. Uh, submitting to the righteousness of God doesn't mean following a law perfectly. We, we can't do it. It means to own our sin, to rely on grace, to call on God. And Israel refused to submit to the reality of Romans 4, 5. And this is such a key verse. This is an amazing verse. It's a, it's a great evangelism verse, good one to memorize. Romans 4, 5 says, To the one who does not work for his salvation, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Israel refused to believe that. And, and Paul's talking, of course, in broad stroke terms. There is a, always a remnant of Jews who are being saved. But by and large, the vast majority of, of Jews, Paul is saying, they just refuse to believe this, that God would justify the ungodly. God must justify the ones who have earned it. That's their mindset, because they don't have a biblical view of mankind. A biblical view of mankind says no one can earn anything. We're born into a depraved state. But Israel says, no, we, we have to be able to earn it. And so they just absolutely reject this idea that God justifies the ungodly. I want to read to you from Charles Spurgeon. Let me, let me grab that book. This is from, this is from a collection of uh, sermons, Spurgeon sermons. It's a little book called All of Grace. And listen to what he has to say about Romans 4, 5, this whole idea of God justifying the ungodly. He says, when a lawyer comes into court, if he is an honest man, he desires to plead the case of an innocent person and justify him before the court from the things which he has been falsely accused of. It should be the lawyer's object to 
to justify the innocent person, and he should not attempt to protect the guilty party. It is not man's right nor in his power to truly justify the guilty. This is a miracle reserved for the Lord alone, the infinitely just sovereign. He knows that there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Therefore, the infinite sovereignty of his divine nature and in the splendor of his ineffable love, he undertakes the task not so much of justifying the just as of justifying the ungodly. God has devised ways and means of making the ungodly man stand justly accepted before him. He has set up a system by which, with perfect justice, he can treat the guilty as if he had been free from offense. Yes, he can treat him as if he were wholly free from sin. He justifies the ungodly. That's a good word, huh? Uh, Sorry that uh, my phone went off there. Maybe you thought it was your phone, and then you took out your phone to look at it. That'd be kind of funny. Uh, Spurgeon here is saying that God alone, in his sovereignty and in his grace, is able to truly justify the guilty and to treat men as though they are wholly free from sin. And that's the good news of the gospel, right? And this is what Israel, Paul is saying, has refused to believe. They've refused to submit to this idea. So man's depravity leads to an absolute rejection of grace. Man's depravity is what leads to a zeal for works. And so finally, in verse 4 of the passage, Romans 10, verse 4, we see that God's gift of the Messiah leaves us with no room to earn righteousness. That, that's what logically follows from all this. It says in Romans 10:4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It's important to remember, I mean, this is kind of a complicated verse. It's hard, hard for us to really grasp this. Um, there's a lot of debate on this verse, too, that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. But it's important to remember when God put our attention on this coming Messiah. He did so in Genesis 3. That's the first promise of the Messiah. As God was cursing the serpent, he told the serpent that the seed of the woman would crush his head. Yeah, that's that's important to note. Um, that's when humanity started looking toward this coming one who was going to put an end to the curse, who was going to crush the serpent, who was going to do away with the hostility in the world that came about because of original sin. Um, Jesus, of course, is the one who was coming, and, and people had faith in this coming Messiah. It all started in Genesis 3. Now, when God gave the law through Moses, he did not give the law to Israel apart from this promise of the coming Messiah. This is super important for you to understand. God did not give the law apart from the promise of the coming Messiah. People were to rely on God always, for their righteousness. I mean, we see it in, in Abraham's life, right? Paul uses the example of Abraham in chapter 4. Abraham lived before the law. He was believing in God, and that was where his hope was found. When the law came, it wasn't that God was saying, okay, here's your new source of hope. 
the new source of hope is this law that you're going to perform. And, and if you do really well, that you're, you are your own, your own source of hope. That's not what God was doing. And so I want you to hear this. I want you to even memorize this line. God's law was never a means for obtaining personal righteousness. Okay. Nope. Sorry. My phone just made a crazy noise. Maybe that got your attention. Are you tracking with me? God's law was never a means for obtaining personal righteousness. God issued the law to Israel for a certain purpose that Israel then perverted. Um, we will look at a couple passages here in a moment that explain in more detail. But God never issued his law so that people would find in themselves their hope or their peace. God's law was never a means for obtaining personal righteousness. Thomas Schreiner says this, Israel was ignorant that God's saving righteousness was a gift of his grace. And thus, instead of trusting God in Christ for their righteousness, they sought to establish their own righteousness. It's a good summary sentence. So we, we know that the law was given for a variety of reasons. The law was given to Israel to display the holiness of God. The law was given to Israel to expose their own sinful hearts. It serves as a really good mirror for men and women to see how sinful they are. The law was given uh, to Israel as essentially their constitution as a nation. Uh, The law was issued to Israel that transgressions may increase. That's an interesting aspect of of the law being given. And, And we see that in Israel at the end of the Torah, which is otherwise known as the law, the first five books of the Bible, at the end of Deuteronomy, God says that there are blessings for them as a nation if they obey the law, and there are curses for them if they disobey the law. This constitution for the nation was the means by which they received blessing or curses from God, because this covenant that God made with them through Moses was a conditional covenant. This isn't like the covenant that God made with Abraham, where God said, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you um, a blessing, I'm going to grow your people through your seed and, and through your name. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. It, it, it wasn't like that, where it was unconditional. You know, God having Abraham kill some animals, split them in two, and then God alone passed through the midst of the animals to show... Abraham had to do nothing to keep up his end of the deal. That's an unconditional covenant. Well, this covenant with Israel through Moses was an if-then covenant, a a conditional covenant, saying if you do this, then this will happen. If you do that, then that'll happen. And so there were blessings available to Israel if they obeyed, and curses promised to them if they disobeyed. And, of course, we know how that goes. It even says that in the curses that their enemies will overtake them as a part of the curse. What happened to the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel? They were overtaken by their enemies. If you look at the end of Deuteronomy 27, 28, 29, those chapters, where we have the blessings and curses all listed out, there's a lot more time that God spends on the curses than on the blessings (laughs) Uh, for a good reason. Israel, of course, was never going to be able to keep up their end of the deal and perfectly keep a law because they were born with sinful hearts. And so that was one of the functions of the law, was the uh, catalyst, you could say, of blessing and cursing in the nation. 
But salvation, on the other hand, was always by grace through faith in Israel. Many missed this. Again, going back to Abraham, before the law was given, how was Abraham credited righteousness? Well, it was by faith. How was he saved? It was by faith. That's always been God's design. That's the way it was even when he issued the law. There were blessings and curses that were conditional upon their obedience, but their salvation was never conditional. And now what's different is that as believers in Christ, as Christians today, we have not only our justification by faith secured through Jesus Christ, but all blessing we have secured in Jesus Christ because we have his perfection. We have his perfect life of keeping the law credited to our account. And so we have all blessings from God, from Jesus. There's nothing conditional to earn from God in this life. And there's no curse that can touch us because Jesus became a curse for us, right? Everyone who's under the law is under a curse. Well, Jesus became a curse on our behalf that we'd be free. And so uh, this is really important for you to get, that God's law was never a means for obtaining personal righteousness. And when it says in our text today that Christ is the end of the law for all who believe, it is saying two things. One, that he is the end, and two, that he is the goal of the law, both the end and the goal. I want to read to you from Galatians chapter 3, verses 16 through 26, a bit longer of a passage, but Galatians 3, starting at verse 16, says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. What I'm saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later after Abraham, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So catch that in verse 18. The inheritance is, if it was based on law, it's no longer based on promise. See the difference? There was a promise made to Abraham that was unconditional. The inheritance of this, this great blessing in Christ, the seed, Christ. That promise was given to Abraham, not if he kept up his end of the deal. It's, God was saying to Abraham that I'm going to bless your seed regardless of what you do. And Paul is saying if, that, if he would have said, hey, you have to do this in order to receive this blessing— well, that means that it would no longer be based on a promise. But God did grant it to Abraham by means of a promise. Verse 18, that's what it says. Now, verse 19, Paul asks a great question. Why the law then? Okay, well, so, so what's the purpose of the law? What's the deal? Okay, let's listen to Paul. Galatians 3.19, why the law then? Well, it was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? This is what I've been talking to you about. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Paul says, may it never be. 
May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. (laughs) Did you hear it? For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have indeed been based on law. But that's not the case. There is no law that can impart life. We don't get life from the law. We don't get personal righteousness from the law because it's unable to impart life. My phone, my, I keep getting notifications. Sorry about that. I don't know if you're hearing my little noises in the background. Maybe that keeps you entertained. For if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. God's law was never a means for obtaining personal righteousness. Now, was, was God's law a means of blessing and cursing as a nation for Israel? Yes. Namely, cursing, right? Because they disobeyed over and over again, and they ended up getting swallowed up by their enemies. But what about their salvation? What about the righteousness of God that they needed on their personal account? Well, that was always based on faith. It was never based on law because the law cannot impart life, but God can. And if you believe God and you trust God and you hope in God for your righteousness, you will not be disappointed. Romans 3, or sorry, Galatians 3.23. I want to keep reading. Galatians 3.23. But before faith came... We were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The law prepared Israel for their Messiah for 2,000 years as their tutor. The law has become our schoolmaster, Paul is saying, so that we may be justified by faith. The law was a means of showing them that they couldn't do it. The law was not given as a means of doing it. The law was given as a means of you can't do it. And now now that faith has come, now that Christ has come, the promised one through the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, now that he's arrived, we have this expression, not the fullness of it, because he's coming again to establish his kingdom. But we have this this inauguration of the coming one from Genesis 3, from God's promise to Abraham. He has come. He's lived a perfect life. He's died in our place for our sins, being a curse for us that we might be made right with God through faith in him alone. That's what Paul's saying in Galatians. That's what Paul's saying in Romans, this is the goal of the law, to lead you here. The goal of the law was to lead you, when Christ came, to see that he is our curse. He became a curse for us, that we might receive the blessing he deserved. That's what the law was up to. That was the goal of the law. But not only is Christ the goal of the law, Christ is also the end of the law, as our text today very plainly says. I want to read to you Romans 7, verses 1 to 6. It says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? 
For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, although she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. Oh, that's so good. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. So, He's given this illustration of a man and woman who are married. The husband dies. The woman's free to marry another. And the connect, the analogy is lined up this way. You died. You were married to the law. You were bound to the law. But you died not in such a way that you are now non-existent, but you died and are free then to be joined to another, namely Christ. Isn't that just startling? Those blessings and curses aren't binding on us as they were for Israel in that Mosaic covenant. That covenant has been, has been ratified. We're in the new covenant. That covenant has ceased. We're in the new covenant. And so uh, here we are now joined to Christ, no longer joined to the law, but we are joined to Christ. And this is particularly a message for Israel. For us Gentiles, we never were joined to the law, right? (laughs) We were a law to ourselves, and in that we were condemned, Romans 2 says. And we are now joined to Christ, free from working for righteousness, recognizing that Christ is the end of the law. Not, Not that the law was ever given that people would earn their righteousness, but we are free from those blessings and curses that hung over Israel. We are free from those conditions because we are now in an unconditional covenant with God through the work of Christ. So Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes. Now, I want to read to you a parallel passage to our Romans 10 passage uh, for today. This is Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. And as I read through this, I want you to think about how do you talk to a self-righteous person? Remember, Israel's problem, as Paul presents it, Israel's problem was that they didn't know the righteousness of God, and they did this willingly in their depravity. Therefore, they didn't submit to the righteousness of God. Therefore, they've established their own righteousness. That's the, that's the line, the, the order. They didn't know God's righteousness. They didn't submit themselves to God's righteousness. Therefore, they are seeking to establish their own. So how do you talk to a self-righteous person who's in that state? Let me read to you Philippians 3, 1, to 11, 1 through 11, and see if you can pick out any key elements that you would want to incorporate in a conversation with a self-righteous person. Paul says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. 
although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. When we get to heaven, we need to ask Paul what he meant by that, because he certainly did not keep the law perfectly. Nevertheless, verse 7, For whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith." that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Some key elements that you should highlight when you talk to a self-righteous person. Number one, the righteousness of Christ renders everything else rubbish. Paul says all these things that were his pedigree that he would put in his bio that made him sound really awesome as a, as a person who worked really hard to be seen as righteous. He counts it all as trash, rubbish, or dung. It could be translated so that he might gain Christ. Notice he couldn't gain Christ if he held on to all that other stuff. Because here's another thing you need to highlight to the self-righteous person. The righteousness of Christ is granted only on the basis of faith. And if you're working to earn it, you're not having faith. If you're seeking to establish your own righteousness, you're not relying on the righteousness of God. You can't do both at the same time. And this righteousness of Christ is granted on the basis of faith for anyone who believes. This is startling to the Jews. They thought, well, not to the Gentiles. They, they haven't been even trying they, they don't have a zeal for God like we do. And Paul says, right. But for those ones who are leaning on Christ alone, who get it now and trust in Christ alone for their salvation, they're much more righteous than you are because they have the righteousness of God. And all you have are filthy rags. Wow. Wow, what an amazing gospel. So when you're talking to a self-righteous person, Whatever law that person's using to prove his own righteousness, he, he's wrong. That person is without knowledge. That person is refusing to submit, according to Romans 10, 1 through 4. And for the Jews, if it's the law of Moses that someone's pointing to, what does the law do according to that Galatians 3 passage? Or maybe it was Romans 7. Maybe it was Philippians 3. I don't remember. That very law, it arouses sin within us. Isn't that, isn't that just so stupid of Israel? The very law that was arousing sin within them, they used to establish their personal righteousness. How messed up is that? We, we don't get righteousness through the law, through works. We get righteousness through faith in Christ alone. God's law was never a means for obtaining personal righteousness. So we must be diligent to proclaim the gospel, to pray for people. The beginning of our passage today says... 
Paul talking, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. That's what Paul's been praying for, for Israel. And, and think of how amazing this is. After Romans 9, where he's very, I don't know, big on the sovereignty of God and all this, he's emphasizing God's sovereignty, that Israel's condition is exactly what God has willed it to be. That didn't stop him from praying. That didn't stop him from asking God to save them. That's amazing. He's still praying. Israel's condition, both then and now, is exactly what God has willed it to be. Now, we know there's, there's coming a time when all Israel will be saved. That's the next chapter, chapter 11, verse 26. Yet, not knowing the day or the hour of when that's going to happen, we pray. We're going to see in this chapter, we proclaim, how will they hear without a preacher? But we also pray. God's sovereignty doesn't stop us from praying. It's our motivation for praying. We see that prayer is the means that God has established for affecting change in the world. And so Paul says, my prayer is for their salvation. What's happening to them right now is exactly what God has willed to happen. And I'm praying that he saves them. That's a heart that we need to have for self-righteous people. Okay? Hope this lesson has helped. Thanks for listening. God bless.